0: Well, thank you, Howard and worship team, for leading us into the songs of worship and just getting us prepared to direct our minds toward our God as we think about, as we study what church body life should look like. Our text this morning is found in the book of Romans, and we'll be looking at chapter 12, verses 9 to 21. So if you have your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 21, that would be great. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, As we consider your love toward us and your kindness to us, your patience toward us, Lord, we approach your throne with great fear, knowing that we do not always live as we ought to, that we do not always treat one another within the body as we ought to that we fail to show one another love, and oftentimes we allow for conflict to be the thing that divides us. And so, Father, we pray for your forgiveness for that, knowing that this is all of us, that every single one of us struggles to, certain, to a certain extent with this. And so, Father, we pray for grace. We pray for humble hearts as we study your word, as we see the means by which You've given us to uproot conflict in our lives. Teach us, Lord, we pray. In your precious Son's name, amen. Being human means that inevitably, no matter how nice you are, you will encounter conflict with someone. Someone, somewhere, will not agree with you. They will rub you the wrong way, they will make you irritated, they will make you angry. Interpersonal conflict is not just a possibility in our lives, it is an absolute certainty. Yet, believing the best in ourselves, there are some who may object to the fact that they run into conflict with people. You know What then are some of the words that we might call the conflict we encounter in our lives without saying that we have a problem with others? Well, some of us may say, no, I don't get into arguments with other people, I just have disagreements. No, I'm not angry right now, I'm just a little irritated. Or, if you want to use more contemporary vocabulary, I'm not bitter right now. I'm just a little salty. He got me triggered with what he said, and I'm just a little salty. Not bitter, just salty. We are prone to mask what we are feeling with our words. We choose to lessen or smooth out what is actually going on in our hearts with language that avoids the words we know reflect sin. Words we know could make us look like bad people. But brothers and sisters, we do ourselves no favors if we choose to soften our language so we can protect our reputation. We deceive our hearts by lessening what we are actually feeling and wrestling with in our hearts, with our choice of words. We have to be honest with ourselves ourselves, and call our sin, sin, when it truly is Sin. And as you saw the title of today's sermon, you, or, or thought about what we could be covering today, you probably thought that today we're going, that, uh, today is going to be a how-to guide to avoiding conflict in our lives, or a helpful message that will help other people when it comes to dealing with conflict. And in part, that is true. But today's sermon will be relatively useless if we approach it without taking a close look at ourselves and evaluating our behavior, our thoughts, and our attitudes the way that God, who sees the heart, sees us. And I know that today may be hurtful for some of you because as I was preparing this sermon, I was very much preaching to myself as well. But I pray that God will give us humility and a desire to address sin in our lives as we study. And in our text this morning, we're going to study two actions that can help us uproot the bitterness of conflict in our lives, two actions that can help us uproot the bitterness of conflict in our lives. The first action we can take to help us uproot the bitterness of conflict in our lives is to encourage an attitude of genuine love. Encourage an attitude of genuine love. As many of you know, the book of Romans was written to the Christians who were living in Rome by the Apostle Paul. And as he wrote to them, his goal was to explain to them once again how we are made righteous before God. In doing so, he reminds them that both Jew and Gentile, all the world, are guilty of sin. We are all guilty of rebelling against God and rejecting what is right. And though no one is able to save himself, God was willing to save us while we were still sinners, while we were still his enemies through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus, because of his great love for us. God himself chose to provide the way for us to be saved from his wrath by having Christ take the punishment that we deserve so that when we confess our sin and believe in him, we could have Christ's righteousness attributed to our account as he took our debt of sin on his. Now, beginning here in chapter 12 and extending to the end of the book, Paul's goal in writing is to show us how being saved by God's grace ought to translate in the lives of those who believe. And we saw in our scripture reading earlier that those who have been saved are to present our whole lives to God as a living and holy sacrifice, as our spiritual service of worship. Additionally, we are not to be conformed to this world, but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, a renewing that leads to us doing what is good and acceptable and perfect, which is the will of God. And we do these things as we care for one another as a part of the body of Christ. When we work together, when we serve one another with the gifts that God has given us. Paul then says here in verse 9 that we are to let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. If we have truly been saved from our sins if we truly have renewed our minds by taking the scriptures and actually living by it, rather than just listening to it and moving on, then the way we serve one another and care for one another in the church must be through a love that is without hypocrisy. It is a genuine love, not a love that smiles on the outside, but on the inside serves through gritted teeth. We might be able to fool others with our outward expressions of love. But hearts that are bitter on the inside, we cannot hide that from God. He sees the bitterness that hides in our hearts as we begrudgingly serve others. And for this reason, Paul reminds us that as believers, we are to abhor or hate what is evil and we're to cling to what is good. Abhor can be translated as Hate exceedingly. Now we tend to flinch at such a statement because the word hate is a very strong word. Yet, this is the attitude that Paul asks us to have against all things that are evil. Against all things that do not please God. We as believers should not, cannot tolerate evil. We do do at times because we are tempted to be soft toward our own sins. To be soft towards the sins of those we love. But what Paul is saying here is that we are to have an intense revulsion of evil because it is the very opposite of who God is. And as Christians, there should not even be a hint of sin in our lives. You and I know full well, though, that unfortunately we still do sin. There are hints of sin in our lives. But do not be discouraged. Because this is the same thing that the Apostle Paul himself was wrestling with in Romans 7. As he reflected on how he wanted to do good. But the very thing that he did was the thing that he hated. And this is the wrestling that we see. And and even as you hear him describe the, the way that he hates his sin. Don't you see the parallels here? He hated his sin. He didn't want to do it. And he's telling us here, we are also to hate our sin. We are to abhor evil. But... Though we sin, though we fail, we, because of God's grace, have confidence that we will never lose our salvation if we truly have believed in Christ and repented of our sins. And this does not excuse our sin, not in one bit, right? But it should cause us to hate sin and to cling to what is good. The word for cling comes from the word glue. Paul is exhorting believers to bind ourselves, to glue ourselves to what is good. Now, what defines good, you may ask? Well, Paul already explained it in verse 2. It's the will of God. We aim to renew our minds, to put on an attitude of genuine love towards fellow believers so that we can prove that God, His will, His salvation plan, they're all good things. Now, how does that help us uproot bitterness in our lives? As we mentioned earlier, There are times when we do not want to show love towards others fully, even if we know that we ought to because we know what's right. There's a spiritual battle that rages in our hearts, telling us that it's okay for us not to love fully at the moment because that other person hurt us. And for some of us, that hurt typically is relatively fresh. But often there are wounds that have been inflicted upon us, whether intentionally or unintentionally, by others in the church. And those wounds, while not new, still affect the way that we see others within the church. When we get hurt, our tendency is to view the one who has caused the pain as our enemy. We bear grudges against the one who hurt us. And while we may smile and pretend like everything is okay, How many times will we go behind that person's back and rehash with others how the offender has offended us? How many times will we disguise it as a prayer request to someone, slowly poisoning others' thoughts towards the offender, or perhaps even deepening the resentment they too share towards the offender? And even if we don't verbalize it to others, rather than speaking to the one who has caused an offense to lovingly confront and restore, how many times do we show the passive, aggressive coldness to the offender? The walking to the other side of the room, the pretending not to notice. All of these things are evidences of our lingering bitterness and hatred towards the offender. They may or may not know what they have even done to offend you. They might have been having a bad day. And this does not excuse the wrong. We don't know why someone acted or said something in a hurtful way toward us. Yet we are determined to hold the offense against the offender's account. Notice, however, that as Paul gives us instructions on how we are to interact with fellow believers, that he does not give an excuse for sin, either for the offender or the one offended. No matter what the offense is, we are to love without hypocrisy, hating the evil within us and clinging to good, being determined to show goodness to all. Remember your sin debt, brothers and sisters. You owed God the Father, an infinite debt because of your sin against him. Yet God in Christ has forgiven that tremendous debt you owed and has given you the righteousness of Christ. Paul, alluding to Jesus' teaching in the disciples' prayer and to Jesus' teaching on forgiveness in Matthew 18, reminds us in Ephesians 4 that we are to forgive others as God in Christ has forgiven us. That certainly doesn't make forgiveness easy, does it? In fact, those of you who have been hurt by others within the church, you know that it is often not easy to forgive others truly. We have to battle our hearts and our pride to forgive and to love because we who have been transformed through the renewing of our minds must cling to what is good, rejecting our tendency to evil. Paul, he continues to explain in verse 10 that the way that we are to interact with fellow Christians, notice, without qualification, is to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. We are to be devoted or highly committed to showing each other the love that a loving family shares with one another. Now, what does that look like? Well, Paul explains that we must give preference to one another in honor. And this is the idea that Paul was getting at when he called for believers to consider the example of Jesus in Philippians 2 as they seek to look out for the interests of others. We are to honor others above ourselves and seek their good and their well-being. Not being selfish, but genuinely considering them as more important than ourselves, even if we don't want to love them in that particular moment. Additionally, being devoted to one another in brotherly love means that we are not lagging behind in diligence in our service to the Lord. Verse 11. Consider this. When we are serving our brothers and sisters in church, using our gifts, it is possible for us to serve one another begrudgingly, to love our brothers and sisters with hypocrisy. And when we use our gifts in this way, yes, we are participating in the life of the body, but because our hearts are not in it, because we are withholding from our brothers and sisters, we can begin to slack off, to lag in diligence. Is that not our nature? I don't feel really particularly warm towards you right now. Yet I also know that I can't discriminate against you in an obvious way, so I will still serve you. I will still show you some consideration, but I'm, not, I'm going to hold back in some of my service, in some of my loving disposition towards you because I'm not happy with you right now. That isn't our nature, is it not? Yet Paul says here that we are not to lag behind in diligence, instead being fervent in spirit as we serve the Lord. We are to serve our brothers and sisters with great energy, even when we don't feel like it, knowing that while we are serving them, yes, we are serving them, we are ultimately serving the Lord. He is the one we serve. He is the one we aim to please. And as we show this familial love to one another, as we are striving to be more like Christ, we are to demonstrate this love in the following actions. Firstly, we rejoice in hope. Like some of our most Recent guest speakers have taught us this idea of hope is not the unsatisfactory hope of our culture that boils essentially down to a wish, to want something to happen or to be true. When the authors of scripture talk about hope, they are not talking about something that they wish can happen, but are instead referring to the concrete hope of being in heaven with our Savior. The kingdom of God is not a spiritual realm up in the clouds where we float around all day playing harps, but is it an actual physical kingdom that our Lord will establish here on earth as he dwells among us. The hope that you have, the hope that I have, the hope that all creation has is founded in the reality that the king will come again. And when he does so, he will make all things new. He will make all things right. And so we rejoice in hope. No matter what what circumstances come our way. No matter what circumstances may come in the way of a fellow member of the body. And though we may be saddened for a time, we point to the hope that is waiting us in heaven. And we rejoice knowing that what awaits us there is Christ. And we'll get it. When the time is right. Secondly, we persevere in tribulation. When a believer has committed to living a life with a renewed mind, with a renewed perspective on how to approach life from God's vantage point, and is able to love without hypocrisy, he or she is able to persevere when times of trouble come, whether it be from health, opponents from outside the church from inside the church, whatever it may be. This ability to persevere is fueled by hope in the coming kingdom, yes. But it is also fueled by how we as believers show each other love and care as well. When Paul says in 1 Corinthians twelve twenty six that if one member suffers, all members suffer with it. He speaks of how the church comes alongside and supports its members. Being a part of the church body means that we bear one another's burdens. Thirdly, we are devoted to prayer. And here's where many of us can do a little bit better. At times, prayer is devalued in our lives because it seems strange to speak to God when we cannot see him. And as a result, when our lives seem to be going well, we don't think to pray much beyond saying grace and asking for forgiveness when we do sin. But other than that, prayer becomes relegated to the back of our minds as it doesn't seem as necessary. When times get rough, we may cry out to God briefly in our pain, praying for relief, but after we pray, we quickly return to trying to solve our problems through our own efforts, not really returning to the Lord in prayer afterwards because I already prayed. Brothers and sisters, we must grow in our prayerfulness so we may remember the one we've placed our trust in. Fourthly, we contribute to the needs of the saints. As those who have been given much from God, we are to participate in the needs of the saints. We're to share with the saints who are in need. We demonstrate the renewing of our minds by entrusting our finances to the Lord and seeking to to care for saints who are in need among us. Now, while God certainly has given us ownership of many things, we are also to remember that all the resources that we've been given are given to us as a stewardship. Therefore, we are to use what God has given to us to care about fellow believers who are hurting. We, as a church, did this last year when we sent a gift of support to Houston Chinese Church after they were hit with a hurricane. We also supported the family of one of our members when they were affected by the fires in Santa Rosa. And I don't say this to say, hey, we've done our, we've done our part. We don't have to do it anymore because we've, we've already done it. And I'm not saying it so that we can pat ourselves on the back either, saying, oh, yeah, good job. I bring this up so that you can be reminded that this is an important part of body life and that while we did well to care for our brothers and sisters in need, we must excel still more. Fifth, we practice hospitality. This can be literally translated, pursuing the love of of strangers, and this is In its historical context, Paul was referring to caring for believers who were traveling since inns in New Testament times were rare, they were expensive, and they were often dangerous. While hospitality still can include housing fellow believers if we are able, this does not mean that offering housing is the only way that we can show hospitality to fellow believers. For instance, we can invite fellow believers over to our homes for meals. We can open up our homes for fellowship. Those are just a few ways that we can show hospitality to one another. Now, we definitely have to be wise when it comes to showing hospitality, especially when it comes to people that we do not know, but we are still called to be hospitable. Granted, some of you have living situations where you are unable to have people come over to your homes, and that's okay. It doesn't mean that this practice of hospitality has been withheld from you. You can think of creative ways to show hospitality as well, like taking someone out to lunch, using what God has stewarded to you to serve others. The way that you show hospitality is not limited to just giving someone a place to stay. If we are all a part of the body, it is important that we extend love to one another. If we are to love without hypocrisy, the extension of our love towards one another, means that we are to put others' needs above our own and show them love, even if we're not really sure how to talk to them because they're younger or older than we are or are of a different skin color than us or dresses differently than us or for whatever reason just makes us uneasy. Now, while what we just looked at is mainly indicative of how we as believers are to interact with one another in general because of our common salvation in Jesus Christ. This genuine love that we are to show one another as a result of presenting ourselves as a living and holy sacrifice to God and a renewing of our minds reminds us of how our interactions with each other ought to be because of Jesus And so as we strive to uproot the bitterness of conflict in our lives, we must remind ourselves that God wants for us to take off bitterness and resentment and to put on a genuine attitude of love that strives to cling to good and demonstrate that good to others. while it still may be a battle for some of us to slow down and to counsel ourselves, to counsel our hearts, to have an attitude of genuine love towards those around us, especially for those who have wronged us. These actions, which flow out of an attitude of genuine love, should be what we pray for God's help to put on and to grow in. And as we begin to grow in our genuine love for others, we will become more like our Savior, who, though he was despised and rejected, beaten, spat upon, mocked, and accused of heresy, loved God and loved people to the point of obedience that led to his death on the cross for sin. Praise God for Christ and for his obedience. May we strive to be like him in our genuine love for others so that we too will obey and please God. That leads us to the second action we can take to help us uproot the bitterness of conflict in our lives, which is to entrust yourself to holy God. Entrust yourself to holy God. Some commentators have designated verses 14 to 21 as verses that talk about the Christian's relationship to those who are outside of the church. But because of the broad application that these verses can have towards both believers and unbelievers, I believe that it is preferable to take this as instruction on how being saved by God's grace influences our interactions with everyone, unbelievers and believers alike. And so Paul, he continues to teach us about how our sanctified interactions with others ought to be like as he commands in verse 14, Bless those who persecute you. Bless, and do not curse. Persecution can take many forms, as it can be an attack socially, emotionally, and physically. The idea here is that of harassment or oppression. The persecutor is not identified. but I mean, Normally, when we think of those who persecute, we rightly think of people from outside the church, for it is almost inconceivable that a genuine believer in Jesus Christ could oppress another believer in Jesus. However, knowing that all believers still struggle with a sin nature until the day that we are glorified with Jesus, it may be possible for a believer to persecute another believer. And perhaps this persecution is not necessarily due to faith. We hope it's not a faith issue. But it could be a result of other factors, like legal claims, political views, Gossip, or the simple schoolyard factor of "I don't like you." As we consider the fact that those who persecute could be anyone, look at how Paul tells those who have been the targets of those who have been who have been oppressed and um, who have been har- and those who have harmed them. We are to bless those who persecute us, bless and do not curse. Notice that twofold repetition of bless. Paul's not letting us get away with thinking, oh, he doesn't really mean that, does he? No, Paul says, no, no, you are to bless. Bless and do not curse. Not cursing those who persecute us is not necessarily the idea that you, are supposed to spe- uh, that you are not supposed to spew out expletives towards the one who has harmed you, although you certainly should not do that anyways. It is the idea of calling or wishing God to bring disaster and or spiritual ruin on a person. The idea of blessing is asking God to bestow his favor on the one who causes harm. For those who have not repented of their sin, this does not mean that we're asking God to bless them materially with wealth, but it means that we are asking that God might have mercy upon them and save them. Jesus says as much in Matthew five forty four to 45, when he raises the stakes... And he says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Think about the implications of this command for the original audience and for all who will be victims of oppression from that time on. Don't just be quick to import your experience or your idea of what this looks like. Think about the Roman believers who had to pick up their families and their lives and flee Rome because of Nero's persecution. Think about those who found themselves in Hitler's concentration camps. Think about believers who are victims of abuse, whether it be emotional, physical, or yes, even sexual. On its own, this statement is seemingly an impossible statement. Every part of us that wants to cling to what is right, to cling to what is just, screams out and objects, saying that those who oppress and abuse rightly deserve God's justice now, so why shouldn't we pray for God's curses to come upon them so that their evil Can be wiped from this earth. Why not? While we should pray for God to be just and to rightly judge sin, Paul is stressing the sincerity and single mindedness of the love attitude that we are to have toward our persecutors. From a human perspective, this task of blessing, not cursing, is impossible for every part of us that craves righteousness and justice wants God's justice now. But God's ways are higher than our ways, and we have to recognize. That sometimes God's justice towards those who persecute and those who abuse will not happen in the here and now, but will happen in eternity. And because of that, we have to entrust ourselves to Him and to fight to have a right view of Him as we turn the other cheek. In First Peter 2. 21 to 23, Peter writes, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but it kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Because Jesus knew who God is, he knew that God is the ultimate judge and that he will deal with all sin rightly and justly. So he entrusted himself to God. Though he was being slandered, though he was being reviled, though he was being abused, he entrusted himself to God and he waited patiently for God to execute justice in his timing. Jesus knew and Jesus knows that God's anger runs hot against those who will oppress and abuse others. But he also knows that God will also sovereignly use that shame that belongs to the abuser alone, not to the victim, to bring some to repentance please do not hear what I am not saying. I am not saying that justice in this life does not matter. I am not saying that those who are abusers and oppressors should not bear earthly consequences for their actions. They absolutely should. But what Paul is reminding us here, as difficult as it may be to hear, is that as a result of renewing our minds, proving what the will of God is, we must entrust ourselves to God who is the ultimate judge, allowing for him to be the judge, thus praying for the salvation of the one who has caused great pain. Again, please do not hear what I am not saying. I am not saying that because the one who persecutes and abuses possibly could be saved later as a result of his shame, that it is okay for the, ob- for the abuse to happen. I am not at all justifying what is evil. I am not at all saying that the pain that those who abuse and oppress is okay, uh, okay as long as the abuser gets saved in the end. God does not consider the lives of his children lightly as he truly is a god of love but what we have to consider as hard as it may be is that god's mercy extends to all who do not deserve it we certainly do not deserve mercy more or less than those who harm others Though the sins of those who harm others is certainly appalling and disgusting, God sees all of our sin in that light. Who are we to tell God that he cannot save someone who has committed heinous crimes? Again, this does not mean earthly consequences. Do not await those who harm others, even if they genuinely repent of their sins. But this is where we must entrust ourselves to God. And as we consider Paul's heavy command to bless those who persecute us and not curse them, Paul, he switches gears for a brief moment and he reminds us that we are to sympathize with those who are around us as well. We are to rejoice with those who rejoice. We are to weep with those who weep. Now rejoicing with those who rejoice may seem like an easy thing to do because it's always easy to celebrate something with someone. But what if... That person's celebration comes at our expense? What if they receive the job that you are hoping to receive? What if they get to experience something that you've waited your entire lifetime to experience and they had it handed to them? What if they win the affections of that special someone that you are hoping to date? And now you're back at square one. So on and so forth. As a result of our minds being renewed by God, we recognize God's sovereign hand in allowing for the one rejoicing to rejoice. And though we may be tempted to be bitter and to resent the one rejoicing, knowing God's will and that his will and his plans are better than we could possibly imagine, we trust in him as we instruct our hearts. And remind them of the truth. We rejoice with those who rejoice out of a genuine love for them. When we weep with those who weep, what Paul is emphasizing here is the idea of demonstrating compassion towards someone who is hurting. Suffering alongside them as they suffer. Now for some of us, weeping with those who weep is a more natural thing to do because God has made us more empathetic towards others. And this is where I encourage you to continue to do well. And for those of you who aren't as good as showing compassion, this is where I encourage you, I exhort you to strive to do better. Even if we don't fully understand the situation, or perhaps don't even believe that what the other person is grieving over is worth tears, weeping with those who weep, carries with it this idea that out of your love for the other person who is grieving, you try to understand the pain that they are experiencing. You get to eye level with them and you strive to understand how they are suffering and to comfort them in that suffering. Verse 16 says this. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Paul reveals that Christian conduct among believers and unbelievers requires for believers to be of the same mind toward one another. And this is not saying that we all have to think the same thing. There is beauty in diversity. Within this own church, we have different thoughts and opinions over what's going on in the news and politics and If this was Paul's command for us to have unity of mind, that we were all supposed to think the same way, we as a church are in big trouble. But instead, Paul, he's not reminding us, or he's not telling us that we are to all think the same way. Instead, as he tells us that we are to to not be haughty in spirit... And we're supposed to be of the same mind toward one another, what well, he's reminding us is that we're, we ought to be impartial towards everyone in the body, not thinking ourselves to be higher or lower than those who are around us. And this is the direction of the rest of verse 16, as Paul instructs all believers not to be haughty, literally minding high things, looking down from above. With a sense of pride or arrogance, but to instead have a great concern for the lowly because of their need. While it may be easy for us in our pride to consider ourselves wise and those who are not equal to us in certain areas of life to be unwise, Paul makes it clear that we are not to consider ourselves higher than others in this regard either. Pride is the inflamed belief of self-importance or self-righteousness, and it leads to many conflicts in the church because we see ourselves above our brothers and sisters. And pride is often at the heart of many a legalistic spirit because pride tells the heart and tells other people that a genuine Christian would never participate in certain actions, and that those who continue to do so or are convicted, or convicted differently are immature leading to passive-aggressive remarks towards others, towards those who are different, trying to shame them into conformity with our thinking, with our convictions. And we might not always see it, but often the way that we angrily react towards comments made to us from others, whether believing or unbelieving, often reflects that hidden monster of pride lurking in our hearts as we cannot Believe someone would dare say something to us or behave in a manner toward us that we find offensive. More often than not, when we are offended, whether it's by word or deed, we never stop to examine our hearts to see why we are so upset as to what happened to us we rarely give the benefit of the doubt toward the offender. Instead, believing that what was done was full of malicious intent toward us. But when we stop to examine our hearts and get past the excuses that come from an attitude of, no, I don't care what the reason is. I have a right to be angry because fill in the blank. That is chief evidence that we are thinking in a manner that is haughty towards others, believing ourselves to be wiser and, dare I say, more righteous than the foolish ones we encounter. When it comes to conflicts that arise in our lives, whether they arise through intentional harm or unintentional harm, Paul tells Christians that as a result of your changed heart and renewed mind, you are never to pay back evil for evil to anyone. Never. To anyone. But this person, they hurt me greatly with what they said or with what they did. No, never. You have no idea how much that affected me for days or even years to come. No, never. But that person's words cut me deeply. No, never. But that person poisoned other people against me. No, never. Rather, instead of trying to get even or to justify ourselves in the sight of all men, we are to respect what is right in the sight of all men. What this means is that as we abhor evil and cling to what is good, we behave in a manner that is universally recognized as good, as honorable, as respectful in the sight of all men. Even unbelievers recognize what is right. You should too. So that you can have a good conscience and testimony before all in the way that you conduct yourself, even when you are wrong, so that when people see how you respond, they will give glory to God because of your behavior, because of how you show them the love of Christ, or you show others the love of Christ. Verse 18 does recognize, though, that even if we are to act in a way that is respectable in the sight of all men, there are times when we will not be able to solve all the conflicts that arise in our lives. And this is denoted by the conditional nature of, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So what does it look like for us to try and be at peace with all men, even if some are not willing to make peace with us? Well, John MacArthur explains, short of compromising God's truth and standards, we should be willing to go to great lengths to build peaceful bridges to those who hate us and harm us. We must forsake any grudge or settled bitterness and fully forgive from the heart all who harm us. Having done that, we can seek reconciliation honestly. So Paul acknowledges that we will still have conflict, the inevitability of that conflict should not be an excuse for our behavior or our attitude towards those whom we have conflict. Instead, we should be willing to humble our hearts and take the appropriate steps towards being at peace. Notice that Paul, he doesn't give us an out for seeking peace. He doesn't say, if possible, when you get around to it, be at peace with all men. No, he says, as far as it depends on you. Meaning that we must be willing to show grace, forgiveness, and love. Not keeping a record of wrongs towards the offender. Even in the pain of conflict, you need to get to that place where you, remembering all that Christ has forgiven you for, are willing to extend that forgiveness to other people. Again, do not hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that it doesn't matter whether you still feel the pangs of hurt, that you just need to force yourself to forgive those who hurt you, and you'll be okay. Some people think that all you need to do is just say, I forgive you, I'm going to force myself to forgive you, and it'll be fine. Grudges are born out of such a disingenuous desire to get rid of conflict. We may pretend like everything is okay, but as evidenced in our actions and our attitudes, we still hold an offender's offense against them in our interactions. And what we want to acknowledge is that it may take some time, but we must try by God's grace to heal from the wounds inflicted upon us, even if they may be deep and be at peace with those who harm us. There are some cases where the consequences and impact of an offense will affect us for the rest of our lives because of the nature of the harm done to us. There are offenses. There are conflicts which arise because of the depth of sin that will change us for the rest of our lives. No amount of therapy or whatnot will ever change what happened to us. Yet in spite of that, As we did as Jesus did and entrust ourselves to the judge of all things. We can come to a place where though we still deal with the ramifications of another sin toward us on a daily basis. We can still at least be in a place where we are willing to forgive the other person. Even if they never actually ask us for forgiveness. We must strive for peace. Trusting that God will be the one who is the judge of all things. And as a result, we are not to take revenge. No matter how serious, how harmful, how irreparable the wrong done to us was. We do not have the right to punish others for the sins they've committed against us. Because though we have been wounded by what they have done, judgment is God's prerogative. And it's His prerogative alone. He may allow for some of that judgment to be seen now. Through jail time. But ultimately, he will right every wrong. Don't miss that. God will right every wrong. And as we explored in our discussion of what it means to bless those who persecute us, God's anger runs hot against all who commit sin, against those who are innocent. He will not forget He will not let the wicked go unpunished. He will judge all wrongs, which is why Paul quotes from the Song of Moses to remind all believers that God will take on our cause in his timing. God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. God will repay all wrongs in his timing. He is the judge of all things and he does not give us the right to take vengeance at any time because vengeance is his and it is his alone. And so instead, Paul quotes from Proverbs 25, 21 and following and he reminds all believers that while we leave justice up to God, while we leave vengeance up to God, we are to overcome the evil done to us By doing good towards those who harm us. Knowing that God can use our response of goodness to the evil done to us to eventually cause those who harmed us to feel the shame of what they have done. Hopefully leading them to repentance. And if they do repent, their wickedness is accounted for in Christ's sacrifice. If they don't repent, Their wickedness is on their own heads and they will pay for it themselves. Now notice that the shame belongs to the one who committed the offense. It does not belong to the one who has been hurt by the offense. We cannot feel guilty for that which we are not responsible for before God. God alone gets to dictate what you feel ashamed for. And if you have not sinned, and you are a victim, you should not feel sin whatsoever. But if we do have a part in the conflict, we must be right with our Lord. But after we are made right with him, we entrust ourselves to him, knowing that he will deal justly with all who sin against those who are his. This morning, we explore the weight that conflict can have on our lives and how we can uproot the bitterness that is caused by conflict through two actions. The roots of bitter conflict can be uprooted in our lives as we encourage within our own hearts an attitude of genuine love towards others. And we can also uproot bitterness, bitter conflict in our lives when we entrust ourselves to God, knowing that He is the judge of all things and he will make all wrongs right. While I by no means expect for all of us to no longer have conflict, to no longer struggle with bitterness as a result of conflict following this morning's message, I pray that what we cover today can be useful in instructing our hearts, in counseling our hearts when conflict does arise in our lives. It may not be easy to uproot the bitterness of conflict in our lives. It takes time to forgive, doesn't it? But we know that by God's grace, we can forgive others as God in Christ has forgiven us. And we can trust that God will always do what is right. Let's pray. Our gracious, patient, kind, loving Father we are grateful to you for all that you've done to save us to bring us to yourself though we were still enemies of you and Lord we know that though we ought to reflect Christ in everything that we do though we ought to love genuinely and to serve one another with great joy we often fail not we often fail to do that instead choosing to harbor evil within our hearts and so we pray for your forgiveness for that and we pray lord for your strength for your spirit's help in our lives so that we can cling to what is good we can cling to what is right And we might do that to others. We pray, Lord, for those of us who have conflict in our lives, for those of us who have bitterness towards others in our lives, that you would help us to heal. That you would help us to forgive and to find hope in the fact that you are the judge of all things. That we can entrust ourselves to you that you will uphold justice. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to trust you in that. Father, grow us in our love for one another and grow us in our trust in you. Help us, we pray, to be more like Christ. And it is in your sons that we pray. Amen.